I have heard of your faithfulness from afar, but it is a joy to be able to be with you today. I bring greetings from LA uh, on behalf of Reality LA. We love you guys. We're so grateful to be a part of this family. And um, as I said before, it's a joy for me here to be here today. I'm not here alone. My wife and my four daughters have been uh, here with me today. We have four girls. The oldest is 10. The youngest is five. Um, so pray for us. Pray for me. I am the man of the house, literally. Um, but we love it. And I've been asked to give uh, a little bit of an update on Reality LA. And so I'll try and do that quickly. It's been over four years now since we sent off Tim Chaddock to plant Reality Church London. And over the last four years, it's been a sweet season for us, as I would say that it's been a time for us of really transitioning from being a young church plant that's learning and figuring every, everything out and, and a lot of momentum, uh, transitioning, Lord willing, to being a healthy church that's making disciples of Jesus from one generation to the next. And God has been teaching us how to grow in maturity um, and really love people and raise up leaders. We, we just appointed some new pastors in our church a couple weeks ago, and we now have 10 pastors and 21 deacons and even the, the health that that's cultivated. I would say for us, um, we feel healthy by God's grace right now, and I don't take that for granted at all. We also had something really incredible happen last year to us. We had um, an old church in the heart of Hollywood who gave us their church building. And this was a church that began in 1928, has faithfully preached the good news of Jesus for 90 years in Los Angeles. And they approached us, and they had about 40, 50, 40 or 50 people who joined our church. We inherited not only a beautiful church building, but also a food ministry where we now serve um, 200 meals a day to the homeless community in Hollywood. And we inherited a recovery program where we're helping guys get off the street and get off of drugs um, and get back on their feet. So, yeah, praise God for that. And it's really been, it's been a, a provision of God within this broader vision of him calling us to put roots down in the city and to be faithful for a long time there and seek the renewal of the city through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to be with you during Advent, and if you, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Nehemiah chapter 8, and while you turn there, I'll just say that Advent is a time where we try to pause, exhale, and be able to learn to wait and hope and anticipate and ultimately rejoice in Christ who is the Lord. And so today I want to talk to you about joy. Anybody here need joy? Anybody here want more joy in your life? Well, today we're going to be talking about a joy beyond circumstances. And so I'm going to read and preach from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. I'll read that text for us out loud, and then I'll lead us in prayer once more. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. 
because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, we too pray that we would understand the words that are declared to us today. And Lord, I ask that we wouldn't just know about the joy that is available to us in you. I pray today that we would experience that joy. As your word goes forth and as we exalt Christ through preaching and through worship, Lord, we pray that your spirit would produce joy in our hearts. God, we come to you today dealing with different things, coming from different walks of life, but we all need your grace. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes to see you for who you are. Give us ears to hear your voice going forth. And we pray that your grace would get to the deepest place in our hearts to change every aspect of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up in a small town in Alaska, and I'll never forget one cold, snowy Christmas Eve when I was five years old. Uh, there was six feet of snow outside our house, the wood-burning stove uh, to keep us warm inside of our house, and a Christmas tree that we literally cut down from the forest behind our house. It's quite picturesque for Christmas. But the reason I remember that particular Christmas is because there was one present that year that I wanted more than anything else. And it wasn't just me that wanted this present. Every kid wanted it. We all knew it would change our lives forever. And so that Christmas Eve was a tough one. I remember staying up late, having a hard time going to sleep. But when I woke up early in the morning and went, ran out with my siblings to open presents, there it was, the very thing I'd longed for, the first ever Nintendo NES 8-bit game system. It had two games, uh, Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, two buttons, A and B, and between my brother and I, the two of us played till our thumbs hurt and our hearts rejoiced. And the only word that I could use to describe how we felt then is joy. But what I just described to you is a joy that is dependent on circumstances. It was a picturesque Christmas. I had the very present that I had longed for. It was a joy dependent on circumstances. But what I want us to talk about today and what I think Scripture teaches us about is a joy that is beyond our circumstances. And that's exactly what we need to hear because many of you come into this place today in the midst of difficult circumstances. You have trials in your life. You're disappointed with, the, with, with how your life has ended up. You're not sure what to do. You're not sure where God is at in the midst of all of that. And yet we spend so much time trying to change our circumstances while God wants to change our hearts and to give us joy in the midst of our circumstances. So that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to learn from this story in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, let me frame this story with you a little bit as we dip into the middle of it. Nehemiah is all about the return of exile, return from exile for God's people. That they had been in the city of Jerusalem, and the city was the great city, the city of peace, the city that had been promised to them, and where David reigned, and where Solomon reigned. And yet that city had been demolished. Babylon had come in, decimated the city, burned the houses, broken down the walls, and dragged off God's people over 900 miles away 
to a place where they didn't want to be, Babylon. And Nehemiah tells of the return to Jerusalem and of the rebuilding of the walls and the restoration of the city. But what you learn throughout the book of Jeremiah is not only is it about a return from exile, it's about a return to God. And at the heart of that is, is it's, it's the need for God's people to be recentered on his word. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, you have this incredible story right before the passage I read to you where all of Israel comes together. You're talking about thousands and thousands of people who come together to hear the reading of the word of God. They build this giant stage, high enough where thousands of people could see it, broad enough where you've got all the leaders of Israel standing up front and they're taking turns reading the word of God. And it doesn't just go for an hour or two hours or three hours. This goes all day long. They're reading the word of God. They're explaining the word of God. They're applying the word of God. And it says that the people are listening and they're responsive. It literally says they're shouting amen. They're raising their hands. They're getting on their knees and on their face before the Lord in prayer. It looks like an incredible response, but there was one thing missing. Joy. And that one thing, it seems, was what Nehemiah thought wasn't just a missing element of this. It was the key element of this. Because in verses 9 through 12 that I just read to you, Nehemiah goes to them and he says, enough of the grieving. The joy of the Lord is your strength. See, they're weeping about what they didn't have, but Nehemiah reminds them of what they do have. They have joy in the Lord. And this joy is a rich concept. I think sometimes Joy is cheapened in our culture today, but we're not talking about a cheap joy. This is a weighty joy. This is a lasting joy. This is a genuine joy. The Hebrew word that's used here for joy in Nehemiah 8 is simcha. And I say it like that, simcha, because I think if you pronounce it the right way, you get more joy, okay? Simcha. And this, this, this Hebrew word is so rich. It's so deep. Um, it really means a gladness in your whole disposition, so in the Old Testament, it's, this joy is associated with the heart, with the soul, with the lighting up of the eyes. This word is used for weddings and festivals and victories. And Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So uh, let's not sentimentalize joy in the midst of this Advent season. Joy is not just a cute kind of add-on. Joy is not the whipped cream to your mocha frappuccino. No, joy is strength. Joy is life-changing. Joy is powerful. Joy is what we want and what we need and what's available in God. And I think this joy is different than happiness, at least in the way that our culture uses those words today. See, happiness, I would say, is a feeling based on circumstance. So when the Clippers win, I'm happy. When I get a book in the mail from Amazon, I'm happy. When I drink a good cup of coffee, I'm happy. Happiness is a feeling based on circumstances. But of course, all those things can change rather quickly, and my happiness would go with them. But if happiness is a feeling based on circumstance, then I would say that joy is a delight that is settled in the soul. This is the kind of joy that transcends circumstances. 
this kind of joy can actually coexist with a variety of emotions. You can have joy and yet be sorrowful or frustrated or confused or happy. And this joy is like a bedrock in our lives amidst the shifting currents of life and culture. So joy is a delight that's settled in the soul, and it's not dependent on our circumstances. So the question that I want to ask now is how do we get it? How do we get this joy beyond circumstances? We want that, right? We, can, we feel the desire for that. Well, we're going to look to Nehemiah 8 for that. And here's the first thing that we learn about how we get this joy beyond circumstances. We have to know that joy comes not from the absence of sorrow, but from the presence of God. And that's a different way of thinking. We usually think of joy as the opposite of sorrow or uh, what you experience when nothing bad is happening. But in Nehemiah, you've, you've, got, this, you've got this scene in Nehemiah 8 that's filled with sorrow. Uh, chapter 8, verse 9 says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. It's a very emotional scene. And not only are they confessing their sin, they're grieving the loss of their city. Even as they're returning to it, it's still in rubble. But Nehemiah is not simply saying, don't grieve. He's saying, don't stay in your grief. Don't wallow in your grief. Confession is, is sobering. But confession isn't God's way of dragging us through the mud of our sins again so we feel extra bad for them. No, confession leads to joy that there's forgiveness. We should be able to grieve and lament, but we do not grieve as those without hope. The grieving process is one that restores joy in our lives. See, the key here is that God doesn't tell them to change their circumstance, but to change their perspective. And we need to hear that because we often think that we lack joy because of what we don't have in our lives. Well, I don't have joy because I don't have the job I want, or I don't have enough money, or I don't, want, I don't have the friends that I, that I want, or I don't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse, or I don't have the, the home. That's why I don't have joy. But listen, true joy doesn't depend on what you lack, but on what you have. And by faith in Christ, you've got God. You have the infinite, unlimited source of joy dwelling within you so that you can pray like the psalmist prays in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God wants us to experience not just a little bit of joy here and there, but the fullness of joy. But let me be clear, when I say that the joy of the Lord is our strength, this isn't a way of minimizing pain and tragedies in our lives. See, there's a danger in reading this passage in thinking that an appeal to joy actually just dismisses the difficulties of life. As if it's saying, uh, ignore the pain in your life and just put on a happy face. No, it's not saying that at all. This is this is not saying that grief is bad and joy is good, so just be joyful. No, grief is the appropriate and right response to loss and pain and hurt. We've got 150 psalms showing us that. See, joy does not dismiss our trials. It puts them in perspective. Psalm 35 says, Weeping may last through the night, 
but joy comes with the morning. Some of you are weeping right now. I know that. For many of you, the the Christmas season is a difficult one for you because it's a reminder of loss in your life. It's a reminder of disappointment. But I want you to hear the word of the Lord. God knows you're weeping. He bottles up your tears, as it says in Psalm 56. He knows every one of your cries. And yet I want you to hear today, you who are weeping. Weeping may last through the night, but joy is coming. Joy comes with the morning. So in your weakness, cling to God's strength. James 1 says that we can actually count our trials as joy, which seems crazy, but why can we do that? Because it's through those trials that God is producing maturity and perseverance in us. And when the joy of the Lord is your strength, it can withstand a variety of emotions or circumstances in our lives. There's such a thing as sorrowful joy, exhausted joy, overwhelmed joy, somber joy, exuberant joy. So wherever you're at right now, look to the Lord who is, our, who is the source of our joy. I like the way that the old uh, preacher Billy Sunday put it. If you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. I love that quote, and I don't, I don't share that to like guilt or shame you, that if you don't feel joy, that you're doing something wrong, you need to change. No, that, that's the last thing that I want to do today. What I like about that quote is that it reminds us that joy is meant to be a part of life with God, because we are connected to the source of joy himself, and it's not just coming and going with moments of happiness. It's something that's deep within us. It's settled in our souls. It's lasting. So how do we get joy beyond circumstance? Well, we've got to know that joy is not the absence of sorrow or pain. It's the presence of God in the midst of it. But then secondly, we've got to know this. Joy is both a gift to be received and a discipline to be cultivated. So first, joy is a, is a gift to be received. It's, and it's a gift that God loves to give. God, let me say this as directly as I can. God is for your joy. And you were made for joy. And God wants you to experience joy. But the problem is, is that a lot of people don't think about God that way today. A lot of people, I would say, think about God as a cosmic killjoy. He's like a grumpy old man uh, up in the skies who doesn't want you to experience happiness and in fact makes life difficult for you just to test you to see if you're faithful enough so that if you suffer for a lifetime, then maybe you'll be able to get some joy after that. But I don't think that's the God that we read of in the scriptures. When you go to the opening pages of the Bible, you see a God of joy. You see a God who delights in his creation and who invites his people to delight in his creation. Just think about it. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden of delight and says, enjoy. Enjoy the fruit. Enjoy each other. And, and, and why is it that we miss this? When, when you hear the, the narrative of Eden and creation, uh, what, you, what you might think of, what, I, what a lot of people assume they think of God saying, there's this one tree, don't touch that tree. And that's like all God says in the whole story. Like God creates Adam and Eve, creates one tree that has really good fruit on it and says, don't touch that. As if there's nothing else going on. 
Or maybe some people even assume God creates a whole world and there's all kinds of beautiful, good stuff in it, but he says to Adam and Eve, you can't have any of it. You just need to suffer and be patient and then someday. No, 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 that's not what happens at all. Go, go back and, and read the story. God puts him in the garden and says, you can eat from every tree. You can eat from all these trees. You can eat the fruit, enjoy, delight yourself in it. He says, but that one tree, don't touch that tree. Don't, don't eat the fruit of that tree, rather. Because what, what he, because he's reminding them that while there are many gifts that I'm giving you, you are meant to ultimately find your satisfaction in the giver, not the gifts themselves. But why do we focus on the prohibition of the one tree when he has invited them to delight in the fruit of the many trees? God is for your joy. Listen, pleasure was not the devil's idea. <laughs> and like God came in and was like, whoa, like what are you guys doing? Like chill out on that. No, I, did, I made you to be robots. No, pleasure was God's idea. Taste buds were God's idea. Sex was God's idea. God made us to experience joy, to be deeply satisfied, to delight in his creation as a way of delighting in the creator himself. So I want you to hear that, that you were made for joy. You have been hardwired for joy. And I would even go as far as saying, God is for your joy more than you are for yourself. But while joy is a gift to be received, it's also a discipline to be cultivated. That's why in verse 10 of Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah says to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. God is teaching them here how to cultivate joy. And what does he do? He tells them to do two things, to feast and to give to those who don't have. And I want you to think about how those cultivate joy. When you sit down for a meal and you take a bite of really good food, you get some good like, like carnitas, like tacos, maybe, you know, like whatever it is, you take a good bite of that with the guacamole and I like, and oh, you just rejoice in that. It cultivates joy. And what if every bite you took was an opportunity to cultivate joy, not just in the gifts that God gives us, but in God himself? to taste and see that the Lord is good. Every time we give, and this is a season where, where we learn to be more generous, every time we give, it cultivates joy in us because when we give, it loosens the grip of greed that's on our own hearts. And so that's why God is serious about feasting and giving, especially in the Old Testament. When you, you ever notice when you read through the Old Testament, you're like, man, they had a really strict feasting schedule. <laughs> like, you're taking off a whole week here, a whole week there, like stopping everything, the best food. That's what you see here. Get, eat the fat, have the sweet wine, like bring it all together. He's calling them to cultivate joy in feasting. And not just in the rich food like I talked about it, but in, the, in the, the community that happens around a table to share with one another, to pray with one another. That's also why God's serious about giving in the Bible. You know, in, in the Old Testament, a lot of people talk about the tithe and where they would give 10%. But what some people don't realize is that the tithe was just uh, what they would give to the Levites in the temple. If you go through and actually look at all the different things that they would give, it would total up to over 25%. And, and here's the thing, God isn't constantly calling them to give just because there are needs. Far too many people think of giving in the church as if it were just need-driven, like there's needs and you've got money, so you need to give it. That's 
part of it. But I think even more so, God calls us to give so that we would experience more joy and generosity. And he's calling us that. And that's why as we mature and as we grow and we become more generous, we experience more joy in our lives. So we have to cultivate joy. And I would say one of the keys to cultivating joy is learning the art of delayed gratification. In fact, I'd put it like this. Maturity is the ability to delay gratification. To be able to say no to weaker desires now so that you can say yes to greater desires later. Maybe some of you have heard of the now famous marshmallow experiment. Uh, This was done by Stanford. And uh, what Stanford did was they took a group of young kids, mostly four and five-year-olds, and they would take them one at a time, put them in a room, and put a marshmallow on the table in front of them. And what they would tell these kids is, you can eat that marshmallow if you want, but if you will wait for 15 minutes, then you will get two marshmallows. Now listen, every little kid knows two marshmallows is better than one, right? That is double the joy. That is double the satisfaction. Like every one of those kids wants two marshmallows instead of one. But they've got to be willing to wait to get more marshmallows. So you got to feel bad for these kids, right? Like four or five-year-olds, like 15 minutes in a room with a marshmallow in front of you might as well be 15 years, right? So they had all these kids do this, and of course, many of the kids just took the marshmallow and ate it. But many of them also were able to wait to delay gratification and then to get two marshmallows. But what they did then was they tracked these kids as they grew up and became adults later on in life. And what they discovered in their study was that the kids who had the ability to delay gratification were healthier and more successful in certain ways as they grew up in life. So some examples of that, they did better in school, they were healthier physically. So that experiment proves the point of what we see throughout the scriptures, that we have to be willing to say no to weaker desires to be able to say yes to greater desires. God is for your joy. And he doesn't just ask you to deny gratification sometimes, but to delay gratification so that you can experience a greater satisfaction later. That's why I can genuinely say, like I said before, God is more for your joy than you are. And sometimes when you settle, you're actually short-circuiting greater joy that God has for you. See, when you're young, you chase happiness. If, If it tastes good, you eat it. If you want it, you take it. If it feels good, you do it. When you're young, you chase happiness. But it's time to grow up. And I want to encourage you to not spend your life chasing happiness, but striving for joy. Striving for the kind of joy that's lasting, that's deep, that settles in our soul. It's a joy beyond circumstances. So how can we have this joy beyond circumstances? Well, we've seen, we got to know that joy comes not from the absence of sorrow, but from the pleasure of God. Joy is a gift to be received and a discipline to be cultivated. But then thirdly, we have to know this. God does not merely give us joy. He is our joy. He is our joy. I want you to notice that Nehemiah 
doesn't just say to God's people, joy will be your strength. That's not what he says. He says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And God himself is our greatest joy. He is our chief joy. Imagine, you know, it's Christmas is soon. So imagine that a, a kid, uh, you know, runs in the living room, opens up all the presents. The parents have put in this work to get just the right gifts and they get the kid everything that he wants and it comes out of a place of genuine love and care. And then imagine if the kid just takes the presents, runs off into his room, closes the door and says, I got these presents now. I don't want anything to do with you. That'd be ridiculous, right? It'd be hurtful towards the parents. But how often is that what we do with God? God, out of a place of love and care, has given us so many gifts. He's, he's given us spiritual blessings of new life and new community and Holy Spirit, the righteousness of Christ. And he's given us all these spiritual blessings. He's given us material blessings in our lives. And it comes from God's generosity and God's love for us. And yet, how often... Do we take those gifts and, and, and rejoice in the gifts to the point where we even forget about the giver of the gifts? See, God is gracious and he gives us many gifts. But the gifts are meant to point us to the giver himself. And we delight in the gifts as, as a way of ultimately delighting in the giver of the gifts himself. And so God has given many gifts, but the greatest gift is giving himself. And he did so in the most unusual circumstance. And we started off talking about God's people in exile and uh, them being amidst the rubble. But if you think exile was de desolate, imagine this. An unwed teenage girl who's pregnant, has nowhere to go, and starts labor contractions. Talk about circumstances. Those are the opposite of joyful circumstances. And yet this is how God in his sovereign wisdom has chosen to restore joy. The son of God came in a manger. The king of the universe became a servant. The infinite became an infant. In Luke chapter 2, tells us that all of this is good news of great joy. I want to read to you from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where the angel gives this declaration of the good news. It says in Luke 2, verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now I want you to notice that this is a declaration of good news it's not good advice. It's not God showing up and saying, all right, everybody, you need to get your act together. That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at your life, and if you've done enough good, then you're, then, you're, then you're good with me. And if you've done bad, then you're not. No, this, this isn't a declaration of good advice. It's a declaration of good news of God's grace. That what we could not do for ourselves, that he has done for us. 
so that we can know by grace that your relationship with God is not based on your performance, but on his love and mercy. And what God has done here is shocking. We forget this because we hear it over and over again in the church. And then you even hear it every year through Christmas. We forget how counterintuitive all this is. That God has shown his majesty through meekness. That his power is made perfect through weakness. And that joy comes not in taking but in giving. See, the Christmas narrative teaches us that all of our longings and our desires are not fulfilled in an idea or a religious system or even a new way of life. No, Christmas teaches us that all of our longings and desires are fulfilled in a person. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our love. Jesus is our victory. Jesus is our purpose. Jesus is our glory. And so listen, Joy is a byproduct. So if you just go after joy, the irony is that you won't find it. But if you hear anything that I say today, hear this. If you want joy, don't obsess over joy. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And joy will start to well up within you. He is the one who has come, as the angel declared, to be a savior to the world. And listen, there's a lot of problems in this world. We, we, could, we could spend the rest of the day talking about all the problems in this world and everything that you saw in the news yesterday and everything you're going to see on the news tomorrow. There's a lot of problems in this world, but let's not forget that the greatest problem in this world is that we are separated from God because of our sin and need to be saved. And Christ comes and he is declared to be this Savior and he saves us from our sin. But sometimes I think in the church, we focus so much on him saving us from our sin that we forget what he saves us for. He doesn't just save us from our sin and darkness. He saves us for the joy of the kingdom. And I want you to, to experience both forgiveness and then gratitude and rejoicing in Christ. So what I want to do is I, I want to briskly walk through the story of Jesus in the early church really quick, okay? But I want to show you how joy is not just an extra add-on to the gospel, but it's embedded in the very message of the gospel. Okay, so let me, let me show you how joy is a part uh, of, of the ministry of Christ in the early church every stage. Okay, let's start all the way back with Jesus in the womb. You got this great story in, in the gospel of Luke where you have Jesus in the womb of Mary, and she goes to Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. So just think about this. Preborn Jesus and preborn John the Baptist come together. And it says that John the Baptist leapt in the womb when he was in the presence of Christ. Now, I don't even know how that's possible, to leap in the womb. I don't know. But he was so full of joy that he did it. He leapt in the womb. That's, that's one of the initial responses. I, I, the first response, maybe after Mary, I guess, of, 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 of being in the presence of Christ. He leapt for joy. Jesus goes on and throughout his life, you see that he has a mission of joy. In John 15, Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
Jesus came with a mission of joy saying, I want you to experience the fullness of joy. And not only did he have a mission of joy, he really had a life of joy. And I want to confront a stereotype here. I think that a lot of people uh, assume that Jesus wasn't joyful. Like, why does Jesus get a bad rap? Like, he was in a bad mood all the time and somber and just, like, pointing out sin. Like, no, we, we just read in John 15 that Jesus says, the joy that I have in me, I want, I want you to have that in you. That, that Jesus is the, the perfect picture of a joyful person. If you don't believe it from John 15, think about it like this. Jesus loved kids. He loved blessing kids. And kids loved Jesus. He must have been joyful. Kids don't like grumpy adults, right? They love Jesus. He must have been joyful. So Jesus lived a life full of joy. But then even as Jesus is approaching the cross, joy is involved in that. And how could this be? I mean, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies a horrific death. I mean, this is, this is a, the crucifixion was a form of Roman execution meant to torture and punish a person. And yet, why would he do that? Well, we know that, that at, the, at the deepest level, he died in our place for our sins so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. And what does joy have to do with this? Is, is, is it anywhere? Yeah, it's at the heart of it. Because why would Jesus die voluntarily for our sins when he had no sins of his own? Well, it tells us in Hebrews 12, it says that he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He did it for joy. Thinking of uh, us being reconciled to him. Jesus thinking of the renewal of creation, the earth rejoicing as it was meant to. Jesus went to the cross for joy, and then it keeps going. Jesus rose from the grave, and we're told in Luke 24 that after he rises from the grave, uh, appears to his disciples, and then ascends, the very last sentence in the Gospel of Luke says that they went back to Jerusalem with great joy. And then it keeps going in the book of Acts. You've got the Holy Spirit descending on God's people at Pentecost. And you know what one of the results and outworkings of the Spirit indwelling you is? Joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit applies the finished work of Christ to our hearts, it creates joy in our lives. So then it's no surprise in the book of Acts, as the church spreads and grows, that in, in like Acts chapter 8, for example, when they go to um, Samaria, the city of Samaria, Many people are saved, and the result of it, it says there was much joy in the city. The church is going forth with this mission of joy, like Psalm 67, let the nations be glad. And this goes all the way to the return of Christ, where one day Jesus will return, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will renew his creation. He will put an end to injustice and evil and wickedness and suffering. And we will experience the fullness of joy. And he will say, enter into the joy of your master. So can you see how joy is embedded in every aspect of the good news of Jesus Christ? This is a message of God's grace to us because of what he has done for us in Christ, that we have access to infinite joy. And the source of joy dwells within us. But having declared grace to you, I want to call you to faith and repentance. 
this isn't just a feel-good Christmas message. Like, you're doing fine. Just sprinkle on a little joy into your life. No, because what I think happens is, for all of us, we, we have settled for far lesser joys. We have chased after happiness instead of experiencing joy in Christ. We have tried to find our joy in career or reputation or money or worldly security. And I want to call us to repentance, to turn from that and to trust in Christ and to find joy in him. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're hearing this and you're saying, I want that kind of joy. I'm tired of going from circumstance to circumstance and not being able to change my own heart. God can change your heart and give you joy greater than you could ever create in your life. Trust in Christ today and become a Christian. If you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you to pray the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51. After he had sinned and then repented, he prayed to the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe you have experienced the joy of salvation in your life, but that seems like something distant and that has grown cold over time. Cry out to God today and say, restore to me the joy of your salvation. For all of us, I want to call us to look to Christ, to cling to him in our weakness, to trust in him with faith, and to rejoice in him as the Savior who has come to bring joy. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that not only have you given us joy, but you are our joy. And so, Lord, we, we turn from lesser joys, the things that we've run to, and we come to you, crying out with faith, with praise, and, and asking, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would produce joy within us. God, we pray that uh, this church would be a presence, uh, a joyful presence in this city, in a city where Many are longing for joy and not experiencing it. May we be light amidst the darkness as we look to Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Church, we want to respond to God's grace with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with giving him glory. God has been so good to you. He has given you grace upon grace. He's given you himself in sending his son, Jesus. And so we want to take time to pursue the Lord now because he has pursued us. As you know, there's a variety of ways that you can respond during this time. We're going to sing and lift our voices. There's just a freedom of response here. If that means sitting quietly in your chair and reflecting or standing and lifting your hands or coming down and getting on your knees on the carpets, pursue the Lord. If you're a follower of Christ, then during this time you can come forward to receive of the Lord's Supper. This is a way of recentering our hearts on the gospel, remembering that Christ's body was broken for us to make us whole. We remember that Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, washing us of our stains. If you need prayer during this time, there's men and women on the sides who would be glad to pray for you. You can go right up to them. And then let's lift our voices, worship God, and live for him with everything that we have because he has given everything for us. Let's do that together now.